Open God's holy word to Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah 13 verses 1 through 27. Thus says Yahweh to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth, and put it around your waist, and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of Yahweh, and put it around my waist. And the word of Yahweh came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it in the Euphrates, as Yahweh commanded me. And after many days, Yahweh said to me, Rise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled, and it was good for nothing. So the word of Yahweh came to me. Thus says Yahweh, Even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow after their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth which is good for nothing. For as loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I've made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares Yahweh that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. You shall speak to them this word. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will dash them one against the other, fathers and sons together, declares Yahweh. I will not have pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. Hear and give ear. Be not proud. For Yahweh has spoken. Give glory to, the, to Yahweh your God before He brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, He turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because Yahweh's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down for your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set his head over you, those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? 
And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot, the portion I've measured out to you, declares Yahweh. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies, I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and nayings, your lewd whorings on the hills in the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will it be before you are made clean? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may you not have to humiliate us to teach us humility. Soften our hearts now that we may not be proud against your word. Give us ears to hear. Repentance and faith. In Christ's name, amen. There's a rich variety to this chapter. Immediately you notice that there's both poetry and prose. That's not that notable. We've seen that again and again throughout this letter, this book, excuse me. But besides that, within this chapter, we have a sign act, a proverb riddle, a summons, a lamentation, and oracles of judgment. Even so, I think there's a unity to this chapter as a whole. There's multiple themes and motifs in this passage, but if there's a dominant one, or at least one that's recurrent, one that's pervasive, more constant, I'd say it's that of the shamed she. As she is shamed in this passage, we might find our modern sensibilities are irritated. This passage is not politically correct in any way. It doesn't pass the Me Too test. As we see this she shamed, it is indeed disturbing. But we mustn't fail to see that she is shamed because she is shameful. And if we don't, then perhaps the problem is that we've made our own loincloths, inadequate, artificial loincloths of righteousness to hide that we are also naked and ashamed before the holy God of heaven. Judah is being shamed here because she is shameful. It's because she's not ashamed that God is shaming her. One aim of this judgment is clear, is to shame the shameful. And whenever God shames the she, his judgment does nothing more than pull the curtain back 
so that his bride is exposed for who she really is. The judgment, you see, is harsh because her sins are vulgar. Our passage opens with what theologians call a sign act. Along this vein, think of Ezekiel's being called to lay on his side and cook his food over dung. Or perhaps the most well-known sign act of the prophets is that of Hosea being commanded to go and take a wife of whoredom. Here, the word of Yahweh comes to Jeremiah four times concerning this single sign act. He's first told to go and buy, put on a linen loincloth, and not to dip it in water, verses 1 and 2. And a plethora of answers have been put forward as to what this garment was. You'll find as many answers nearly as you visit translations. You go to the ESV, you have linen loincloth, the Christian standard, linen undergarment, the New American standard, linen waistband. The NIV, linen belt. And all these are permissible. It's left to the context to really determine which is the best fit. And I think you'll see that as we go through this passage, that of a linen loincloth or undergarment is the obvious choice. And whereas there's some debate, though, concerning the garment itself, there's no debate concerning the material it's to be made of, linen. And with just that you can see that this would not have been an article of clothing that would have been completely alien to Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah was the son of a priest born in a priestly town, Jeremiah 1.1. And as such, he would be familiar with the command given in Leviticus 16.4 concerning the high priest on the Day of Atonement. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And concerning all the priests, which would include his father. We don't know exactly where his father uh, was in the priesthood. But concerning them all, Moses instructed, You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar, come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. There, this shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him, Exodus 28, 42-43. I believe it's precisely this kind of garment that Jeremiah is being called upon to buy and to put on. And for Jeremiah to do this, you have to recognize this would be in contrast to the typical garb of the prophet, which was a hairy garment uh, and a leather belt. We read in 1 Kings 1.8 of the, the attire of Elijah and how he was identified by the way he dressed, also Zechariah 13.4 carries this, as well as the, the dress of John the Baptist. And the significance of what John the Baptist wore is built upon the way we see the prophets dressing. And so here's this prophet being called on by God to wear this garment which you associate with the priesthood. 
And what this would do, more so than anything, the significance of it is simply this. Jeremiah's undergarments are now of public interest. It would have been known. Finally, he's called on not for it to be dipped in water. Because the second time the word comes to Jeremiah, verses 3 and 5, he's told to go and hide the garment in the cleft of a rock near a water source. And there's some debate concerning the water source itself. Some think that this approximately 600-mile round trip to the Euphrates, too much of a hassle. God wouldn't have put such a burden on the prophet. As far as this being too long, there's no problem fitting this in Jeremiah's timeline. He had a 40-year span of ministry, so this long journey is easily accountable in that regard. And if you think that this act too extreme, well, consider that Isaiah was called upon to walk around naked for three years, which I take that account to mean he was, he was to walk around in a garment exactly like this, a linen loincloth, most likely. Three years. I'm sure Isaiah would have gladly traded sign acts with Jeremiah if he had the opportunity. Of 18 uses in the Old Testament of the word you have translated Euphrates here, of 18 uses, every one of them, every instance of this word, the Hebrew word, is translated and clearly should be, it's justified to be, as Euphrates in the Old Testament. I see no reason to deviate from that pattern in this passage. And so then one of the most jolting things about this sign act is the length of time, the the journey that would be involved to perform it. Whenever the word of God comes to Jeremiah the third time, verses 6 and 7, it's to go and retrieve this loincloth. It's not altogether clear if Jeremiah made it all the way back to Jerusalem, and then he's called upon to make this journey again, but I think that is the implication of our text. Again, you can see, Jeremiah, this would cause some interest He's bought this linen loincloth. He's been commanded by God. He makes the journey. He comes back. He does not have it anymore. Now he's commanded to return and to retrieve it. Doing so, it's, it's found to be spoil, spoiled so that it's good for nothing. There's nothing miraculous about this. There often is, as far as I can recollect, there, there is not a case that I can think of where when a prophet is called upon to do a sign act, wherein there is a miraculous component. This is in contrast to the sign wonders that the prophets sometimes perform. And I'm sure if they had the choice, they would much rather look like Moses and perform a sign wonder than perhaps the prophet who performed the most sign acts and the most bizarre of sign acts, Ezekiel. So they would much rather look like Moses performing a sign wonder than Ezekiel performing a sign act. And this is because the sign wonders brought forward and manifested God's salvation and His judgment. Most often, that salvation by judgment. But the sign acts brought the prophets into the plight, the doom, and the misery of those with whom they communicated. Often, paradoxically, 
the prophet's obedience in the sign act portrayed the disobedience or the consequences of disobedience of the people of God, such as we see here. If you think this is rather drawn out to make a singular point, well, that's the idea. The sign acts are megaphones. They're meant to jolt, startle, and awaken. The act is done, but the interpretation is yet to unfold. The, the sign acts are bullhorns, but a bullhorn is only as good as the voice behind it. God interprets these sign acts. They are not dramas that are simply meant to move you emotionally. And you don't get to interpret them as you wish. These aren't allegories where everything means something. They function very similar, nearly identically, I would say, to the way we see parables work. They have to be read closely to understand how they function and are meant to be understood. And so, with the spoiling, you might think that the point is Israel's spiritual corruption. Her defilement. She's unclean. But then you might call to mind that what's happening in this parable is not that Israel's being exiled so that she becomes unclean and spoiled. She's being exiled because she already is spiritually unclean and defiled. So if you interpret the spoiling mentioned here as her spiritual uncleanness, you flipped this parable upside down. The exile is not the cause of Israel's corruption. Her corruption is the cause of the exile. And now we're reading of a spoiling then that happens on the other side of exile. And the spoiling, it's very clear, is Yahweh spoiling her pride. Verse 9. Her great pride. The spoiling is not related to Israel's spirit, Judah's spiritual corruption, but her humiliation. Who is it that spoiled? Verse 10. This evil people, Judah, who refuses to hear his words, going after other gods, whoring after them. She's unfaithful to God's covenant words, her vows to him, whores with these pagan gods. And it's she who will be made like this loincloth, spoiled, good for nothing. And the grounds upon which this judgment is made look back to the earlier episode of the sign act, verse 11. As a loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so he's made the whole house of Israel and the house of Judah cling to himself, says Yahweh. He has taken Israel, Judah, into intimate union and communion with himself. You remember it was commanded that a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast, or the other translations sometimes read, cling to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. I believe it's this very kind of covenant union and communion that's being portrayed by this imagery here. And the purpose of taking Judah into union with himself was that she might be for him a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. 
In union with Him, they were to shine forth with His glory. Remember after delivering them from Egypt, bearing them, as He says, on eagles' wings, He brought them to the mountain, and from the fire He spoke, saying, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice, if you'll hear and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what was involved in being a people, a name, a praise, a glory. But they wouldn't listen, and so his treasured possession is now to be by him spoiled, humbled. Saints, know this. Christ's bride will assuredly be made holy and pure without spot or blemish. She's being made such even now on this earth. And how does Christ do this? He does so by the washing of His Word, we're told. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5. Concerning His bride, Jesus prayed to His Father, I have manifested Your name to the people You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your Word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Well, having kept the word because they were given to Christ by his Father, Jesus goes on to pray for them in this way. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. He washes her in the water of his word that he might present his bride to himself holy, without spot or blemish. If you are not thus clothed with the righteousness of Christ, being conformed to His image, and all this by faith and the faith that comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ, if you are not clothed in Christ, you will be stripped bare, exposed, humiliated, ashamed before the holy God of heaven. If you refuse to hear this word, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead, follow your own heart, going after the gods of this world to serve them in your great pride. Your great pride will be spoiled and you will be seen to be good for nothing because you were made for this purpose. You were made by the Creator to reflect His glory, to be for Him a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But if you will not listen, if you are not wed to Christ, you will be cast off forever, spoiled, humbled, humiliated, good for nothing. From the linen loincloth, we go to wine jars in verse 
verses 12 through 14. And this time you don't have a sign act. This isn't performed. In chapter 19, we see, we see Jeremiah breaking jars of clay, but here the imagery is merely verbal. What we do have is very likely a proverbial statement. Every jar shall be filled with wine. But, as that proverb is put in the mouth of Yahweh, I have a word from Yahweh. Every jar shall be filled with wine. The response would have been, that's anticlimactic. We know that. Of course every jar will be filled with wine. But as they responded that way, they would be indicting themselves. What kind of vessels are they? What will they be filled with? John Calvin comments, They indeed all know that bottles were made for wine, but they did not understand that they were the bottles. So verse 13, The kings, the priests, the prophets, all the inhabitants shall be filled with drunkenness. And drunkenness is repeatedly throughout the prophets, this imagery of being drunk on the wine of God's wrath. Later in Jeremiah, we'll read, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Thus Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. These jars, verse 14, after being filled with the wine of wrath, are dashed against one another. So that the filling doesn't cause God to have any mercy or compassion such that He doesn't then ultimately destroy them, pity them, spare them destruction. All Humanity testifies against itself as creation bears witness that the wrath of God is on man for all his unrighteousness and ungodliness. And we give credence, we verify this testimony of creation inadvertently but unavoidably. Romans 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? If we're honest, if we will stop Suppressing the truth it will be plain, it is plain, that we as rebels in Adam, if not for the grace of God, are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Romans 9. Vessels of wrath are made to be filled with the wine of God's wrath. Shall not every jar be filled? Yes. Those vessels of mercy that in His grace He chose before the creation of the world in union with His Son will be filled. But those vessels of wrath, I think 
Paul draws right on this. They are vessels of wrath. They will be filled with his wrath. And they are prepared for destruction. To be smashed and broken, utterly destroyed. Our pride might rail against this truth, but it cannot avoid it. One would imagine that Jeremiah's audience turned from disdain. Of course every jar will be filled. To anger. Pride may have remained after this word was explained more fully by Jeremiah, but it's a pride that had stepped into a trap to be shamed now. But you notice, as far as the way that Jeremiah is organized at least, perhaps not in the moment, but the way way it's organized, we don't see Jeremiah responding with a gotcha. But instead, immediately after this, he pleads. And then he laments, verses 15 through 17. Following his clever use of a proverb, he doesn't rub it in. He pleads, verse 15, that they hear and be not proud because Yahweh has spoken. Humility has ears where pride has a mouth. This plea takes us back to the loincloth and Yahweh spoiling Judah because of her refusal to listen. If she will listen, if she will give God the glory, she will be for him a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But the need for her to listen, to be humble and hear is urgent because if she fails to do so, she will, verse 16, stumble as one who's on a, on a mountain in this precarious situation to where she's expecting light, but she's enveloped with darkness. And so, for this reason, if she will not hear, verse 17, Jeremiah will weep. He'll weep bitterly. Because she will be taken captive. And next, verses 18 through 19, Jeremiah receives this word concerning the king and the queen mother. The queen mother had an influential position. You can understand this by reflecting that whereas the kings had often multiple wives, they had one mother. And this is why so often, I believe, you see the queen mother listed in the accounts of the kings. For instance, 2 Kings 24.8, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And Jehoiakim and Nehushta are very likely the king and queen mother addressed here. We read in 2 Kings 24. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother, and his officials, his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, and he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief of men and of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
So the king and queen mother are told to humble themselves because the crown has fallen from their heads. It's striking, isn't it? Why would God choose to to point out the queen mother in here as well? And also you see in the account given of the, the exile there. Why highlight that? Well, one reason I think is it fits with this theme that we have here of the shamed she. And the extent of this exile is seen in this. The cities of the Negev are shut up as well because all Judah is taken into captivity. The Negev was that wilderness area uh, that made up most of southern Judah. That wilderness where David so often found refuge in a hiding place. This is the rural area of Judah and even it is impacted by this disaster coming out of the north. And the final section of our text, verses 20 through 27, is a bit shorter than the first and longest section, but it's the most dense, it's the richest, it, it has the most information crammed into it, so it feels like it's the longest in that sense, and it's drawing on so many of the themes we've seen and brings them to their fullest expression. Emphasizing especially that central motif of the shamed she. And one way you see that is, is, is with very few exceptions, the you addressed here is feminine. First she's to lift her eyes and see those who come from the north, verse 20. So that boiling pot that we saw in chapter 1 precariously tipped away from the north, ready to spill southward on Judah, now spills to wash over her. The invading forces of chapters 3 and 6 coming out of the north to bring disaster and great destruction are upon them. The great nation out of the north in chapter 6 who comes with bow and javelin whose sound is like the roaring of the sea as her cavalry advances as set an array against her. The great commotion out of the north of chapter 10 has now come to make their cities desolate, a layer of jackals. And so it is that you see she's asked, where is the flock that was given to you? Your beautiful flock. I don't believe this is addressed to the leaders. I think this is imagery for the nation herself. She's been made desolate. Where is her flock? This shepherdess is without any sheep. And those with whom she's made alliances to prevent this, Her friends that she previously treated as peers. Now she finds to be her rulers set over her, verse 21. And so pangs of like a woman in labor come over her. And these pangs are an expected reaction to such humiliation. But but that they would come upon her, that was not expected. And so she asks, why? And the answer is plain, it is because of her great iniquity. That her skirts are lifted up. This is her pangs now. Her skirts are lifted up and she suffers violence. Yahweh exposes his unfaithful bride and then leaves her to suffer violence from those she has fornicated with. We'll pick up on this, but this is the most gut-wrenching imagery and, and it comes to a higher pitch yet. Add to this the depth of her iniquity is exposed by this question. Verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Now the point here is not that dark skin is shameful, 
any more than a leopard's spots are shameful. Indeed, the leopard's spots are as glory, as beauty. The point is simply that these things are unchangeable. And in the same way, Judah's wickedness is unchangeable. We sin because we are sinners. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The reason we do evil is because we are evil. Even the good that we do is evil because our motives are evil. I don't know how you can escape this and simply from this passage. Romans 14 tells us that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If someone has faith, they've been made new. They they are in union with Christ. They're a Christian. Before someone is a Christian, everything they do is then by definition not of faith. And everything they do then is sin. Which is why... I think Thomas Brooks is right on when he says, till men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. Just sins all painted up and pretty. Sin all the same. This is why, as we've seen in Jeremiah repeatedly, the need is for a circumcised heart. A new heart, a new creation, regeneration. And we cannot change our spots. We cannot make ourselves new. If this is to happen, it must be of grace. Back to Judah, verse 24. He will scatter them like chaff. This hot desert wind will throw them all over the place. And so it is that now being scattered, she receives a new lot, a new portion, a new inheritance from her Lord, verse 25. If he brought her into the land to be glorified as his bride, now he drives her out to be shamed as a prostitute. When he shames her, again, recognize, he exposes her for who she is. Nothing that is hidden in the dark will be allowed to remain there, but be exposed in the light. This is not injustice. This is justice. Yahweh does not put a shame on her that doesn't fit. What he does is remove his royal robes from her, robes that she's used to conceal and to commit her whoredoms. He removes them so that she's seen for who she truly is. He does not put on an alien shame. He exposes the shame that is already rightly there. He removes the fig leaves and now his bride stands exposed. Foremost, not before the nations, but before his holiness. Now, if Jeremiah's words here cause you to wince... Listen to Ezekiel chapter 16 where this metaphor is drawn out and explained more fully. That chapter begins wonderfully. As Yahweh in grace finds this undeserving woman Israel. 
and takes her in covenant love to himself and makes her beautiful. But then she uses that beauty to prostitute herself. Ezekiel 16, 35-43 Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure. And all those who loved you and all those who hated you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them. That they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as a woman. As I will judge you as, woman, as a woman who, as women who commit adultery. And shed blood are judged. And bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands. And they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful joy jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. So will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will be no more angry, be, and, and no more be angry, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Declare, therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares Lord, the Lord Yahweh. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? See, why is all this so? Well, verse 25 of Jeremiah 13 says it's because they have forgotten Him. They have forsaken covenant. And in place, they've trusted in lies. She's forsaken covenant, embraced the lies of these lovers. But Yahweh sees her adulteries, her neighings. We've already seen this image before used to bring out her perverse lust. Chapter 224, she's like a wild donkey used uh, in the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? Jeremiah 5.8, they were, referring to Judah, well-fed lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. And so it is that he pronounces on her this woe, this word of curse. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Ending with the question, how long will it be before you are made clean? The sense is that despite the severity of the judgment promised, it isn't enough to awaken her so that she hears and gives God glory, but persist in her pride and rebellion. The sense of the question is that the loincloth is corrupt, but it need not be spoiled. That she would hear and not be proud is the longing. We are 
every one of us, left to ourselves and of ourselves, a corrupt loincloth, deserving of nothing but such shameful spoiling as we see here. What Isaiah says of Judah is true of all of us. We have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The words for a polluted garment there are provokingly graphic, referring to a soiled minstrel cloth. We are unclean. Polluted. And whenever God spoils the cloth, He does nothing but expose it for what it is. And put upon it the proper shame and judgment appropriate. But the concluding question of our text is asked as if there's hope. But what hope can there be for the unclean to be made clean? As you read through the Old Testament again and again, you see that always, every time, the unclean defiles the clean. But then we come to that hope that Jeremiah promised. The hope of the new covenant. And we see that the blood of the the new covenant, that precious blood of the Lamb of God without blemish or spot, is not defiled By the unclean. It makes the unclean clean. Whereas in the Old Testament. If a leper touched you and you were made unclean. Jesus touches the leper and they are made clean. In a beautiful instance. Luke chapter 8. We find a woman. Who has been rendered unclean for years. Not because of any sin. But simply because of. Sickness she has suffered. We read there was a woman who had spent, uh, who, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. There was no hope in any man. She came up behind him. And touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surrounded you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And the woman, when the woman saw that she was not hidden. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You notice Jesus exposes her. She wanted to remain hidden, but he exposes her not to her shame but to her glory and grace. Trembling sinner, upon hearing His word, hear 
flee to Christ and cling to Him and no other in faith. And He will clothe you in His righteousness and remove the stain of sin and all its shame. But you must hear. Do not be proud. You are unclean. But Jesus is not only holy and pure. He is the righteous robe. Of those who trust in him. Be wed to Christ and you will be washed. Clean by his blood spilt as the payment for sin. And in place of shame. You will be for him. A people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. He is all our hope, all our righteousness. Our sanctification, our wisdom. He is our hope of glorification and life eternal in communion and union with you. And so may our hearts be more endeared. That having faith strengthened, we would be faithful. And not allured to the idols of this world. We praise you that in Christ, we who deserve nothing but shame, for we are indeed shameful, for the merits of our Lord will be clothed in holiness and glory and honor, all to the praise of our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.